Well, good morning again. A couple things. First off, uh, give it up to uh, our worship team and elders. Uh, they, they got an email at like 5 o'clock yesterday uh, that told them that I most likely wouldn't be here. Um, and you were, you were, the plan as of this morning was that you were going to see me up there um, and not in person. And then this morning, it was just, just good enough to say, you know what, I'll, I'll come in and, and preach as long as I don't have to do any of that other stuff. And so they kind of sprang into action and shifted some things around. And the elders were ready to lead and everything. And so just give it up. We have a deep, a deep, wonderful, beautiful bench of people. Amen. Amen. So that, that's first of all. Second of all, uh, last week it was pointed out to me uh, that I forget to tell people in the church when they can sit down. And that people stand for an exorbitant amount of time. Um, also, we swapped this mic, so if it's still doing that, we're making his hems. Um, but after, after the, the song, right before the pastoral prayer, when I get up here to pray, you can sit. If I forget to tell you that, just sit down. Check. There we go. Man, can't catch a break. Um, so yeah, feel, feel free to sit down. If you, if you, are, if you are tired, uh, you can sit down earlier than that, and that's no trouble at all. Sometimes in the midst of prayer, you know, you just forget to tell people to be seated. So after that second song is over and we come up to pray, you can sit. And then the other thing that was pointed out to me is that it's really hard for a whole room of people when they stand to read like four pages of scripture together. Um, we don't have to read in unison. I will read the scripture and you can simply listen to it, but we just invite you to stand because it's, it's a thing that kind of sets apart the word of God from the word of me, in a way. Uh, and so, if there's any confusion there, hopefully those things are helpful. Um, I feel like a flight attendant, like, for a pleasant worship experience, <laughs> here are all the steps and things that you need to know. So that being out of the way, let's, let's move into our, our time of preaching this morning. I am... Um, you know, we're, we're raising two, two kids, and Graham is now in that two-and-a-half-year range where you start to think about, you know, discipline and rules, and he's, he's learning all the, the rules of, of house and life and, and all these things. And as any two-and-a-half-year-old, you know, they call it terrible twos for a reason. It's not because kids are all terrible, but that age just stinks in some ways. It's wonderful in some. They're discovering new things. But rules are hard, and, and Graham, you know, struggles with rules. And someday when he's a teenager, I can pull up this video of the sermon and tell him, yeah, you, right? Rules are a hard thing. And we have to be careful because we as adults kind of know the rules, the written ones, the easy ones, the, the plain ones, and the unspoken ones. But it's hard to remember that he as a two-year-old is kind of still learning those rules, right? And so there's times when he blatantly disregards the rules of the house. There's things he knows he's not supposed to do. You know, you're not supposed to spit. You're not supposed to, you know, slap mom. Those are basic things. But every once in a while, he just acts out and gets crazy because, well, he doesn't know what the rule is, right? He's doing something wrong, but not to him because he just doesn't know, right? And so then you have to ask yourself, like, can you discipline or punish a kid for, for doing something wrong when you really haven't taught them to do right? Or maybe you've said it once, but again, it's two, 
Right? So we, we're living that crazy, like, how do rules work in a house when you have a two-year-old? Like, how do you figure all that out? Because they just can't follow things as well as you would want them to. Like, I want to sit down and rationalize with him like he's a 30-year-old man. Right? The other day, I was on Friday. Friday, uh, Britta went back to work this past week. Friday was my first day home alone with both kids. And he is jealous whenever I have Aaron. And so I try to get him to go down or try to get her to go down to sleep. And I will get her down and sleeping and then play with him. But he wants to go see his sister. I'm like, if you leave her alone, you get me one-on-one. But what does he do? He goes in and he spikes something into her pack and play and she wakes up and she cries. You know, so there's, it's just this crazy kind of world where, where rules are a thing but not a thing. And we're learning them. And he doesn't quite know them. Paul today in our passage, is going to get deep into the law. We've referenced it a bunch. He's talked about how grace is more important than law, right? How it's this, the, the, the way that we have faith and the way that we have salvation comes through the grace of Christ and, and, and through faith in him, not through the works of the law. But, but the law gets some detailed treatment in our passage today in Galatians 3 um, in a way that it hasn't been looked at before, right? And so one of the things that Paul is, is going to answer is the natural question that most Galatians and most Christians have next, right? You grew up, if you, if you became a Christian later in life, you grew up thinking that the way that you get to, if there's a heaven maybe, right? Like it's, it's by being a good person, right? Like you're taught that from an early age with Santa, right? You're naughty or nice, right? Good person equals reward, and you go to the good place or whatever it is. And then the gospel comes in and says, what you do actually has nothing to do with, with your salvation at all. Right? It's, it's a real kind of system change. And part of why we see the Jews struggle so much is because that's been their system. Right? They've had the law for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they have to adjust. And then Paul comes in and says, no, 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 none of that is relevant to your salvation. Right? The promise comes through faith. And the logical next question that they have and that we or any new Christian should have too is, well then, that's great, but what's the point of the law? Right? If it's not there to save us, like what, why, why have it? Right? Is it irrelevant? Are we just going to do whatever we want to do? Right? That's why we, we mentioned this last week, but Paul at some point in Romans asks, right, should we sin all the more that grace should abound? Absolutely not, because... right. But what is the point of it? And that's what Paul is going to get at in today's passage. So let's stand up. We'll read the passage together. I'll read the passage and you'll listen to it together. <laughs> and then uh, we'll, we'll dig in to what's, what's a pretty hard text, I think. Uh, starting in Galatians 3, verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. 
Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under it so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's and you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The word of the Lord. Have a seat. I remembered that time. There's a lot to unpack here. This is, this is one of those passages that's thick and, and, and has the beautiful tradition of Pauline run-on sentences that, you know, like he can literally write one sentence that's like a whole page of the Bible. It's impressive. And we're talking about heirs and offspring and angels and, and all kinds of weird stuff. And so we, we need to break this passage apart into some chunks. And the very beginning of it, um, he, he's trying to produce this this really thorough examination of what the law is for, but first he gives one final argument as to why it's not the thing that saves us. Like, why salvation, finality-wise? Why doesn't it come through the law? And the example he gives is the covenant with Abraham, right? And so he talks about this promise, the promise to Abraham that God has made. And if we want to understand how that has anything to do with the Galatian people, we have to go back to that promise. And it's in Genesis 3.15, if, you, if you've been there, I'll just summarize real quick. Um, the Lord is, is, is engaging with Abraham, and, and he makes a promise that he will have descendants as numerous as the stars and that there will be an inheritance, right? What he's promising is the foretaste of salvation. Like, there will come the possession of the land, the inheritance, the blessing, the promise. Those are all kind of foreshadowings of what we think of as salvation and life in Christ, right? And he promises to Abraham that his heir will, will, will be that blessing, will have that blessing. In other words, through Abraham, we are all promised salvation. Right? That's the promise that God gives. And when he does it, it comes in a really brutal way. Right? If you want to read Genesis 3.15, if you ever had like an oath that you made with somebody or you entered into a contract, you, you did it wrong. There's a better way to do it, and here it is. In Genesis 3.15, you know, the, the Abraham has this promise made, and he falls into his sleep, and, and, and the Lord asks him to prepare these, like, this alley of animals, right? And so Abraham takes these various animals, like bulls and other things, and he cuts them in half, and he lays one half on each side. So there's literally, like, an aisle in the middle with, like, dead animal halves on either side of him, right? And then the Lord comes, and, and like, the, the smoke and fire enters through that passage, and then God makes the promise, and here's essentially what happens. God is saying, listen, I am promising you this inheritance. If I fail, may this be my fate, right? So that's, that's like a, like, we do like spit handshakes. Like, the Lord did it cooler than you did when you were in middle school, right? This massive oath. Can you just imagine the picture of him standing in between and Abraham looking at it and going, all right, you, you really mean your promise, <laughs> Right? 
And so the Lord makes this intense, serious promise that, listen, by faith, you will receive the promise. And so Paul goes back to that because the Israelites would understand it. And he says, look, here's the problem with the law being what saves us. The law came 430 years after that incident with Abraham. So God made this covenant that said, listen, it's going to be by faith. And here's the most unique thing about the Abraham passage. Usually when you have some kind of a contract or promise, both parties walk down that aisle together. Right? They meet and they, they both agree. Like, if I, if I fail, you can do this to me. And if you fail, I can do this to you. In the Abraham passage, though, Abraham never walks through the aisle. God never asks him to. Because God never makes any stipulation. There's a contract. There's not a, if you do this, I will make the promise. The only party in the contract is God. Abraham's just the recipient. Right? Nothing is asked of him at all. And so when Paul is talking to the Galatians, he says, look, here's the thing. This promise with no conditions was made. Like through faith, you're going to have salvation and be an heir. So the challenge is the law came 430 years after that. So if you're going to say the law's purpose is to save us somehow or rescue us, well, that would have to annul the former promise. And God doesn't annul contracts. He's making it like a legal argument. If you're a lawyer, you love this passage because you're going back and exploring, like, okay, which came first? You know, like, I mean, he's literally making, he's a lawyer making a legal argument in this instance of it can't be that the law saves us because it came after God already saying we were saved just by him through a promise of faith. So then in 19, he finally asks and answers his own question. He says, well, what on earth then is the law for? If it's not to save us, if it's not to cleanse us, if it's not to purify us, if it's not for any of those purposes, then what is the point of the law? And he answers it. But one final thing before I do that. There's a section in there about um, angels and, 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 you know, and, and weird, like, one but many. Uh, I'm going to go back and, and take a look at it real quick for you, um, just so you can see it. Um, here, in, starting in 19. 19a says this. And then the law. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And then here's the weirdest passage. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. I am not going to tell you anything about what that passage means, that little section, because I have no clue. Um, I remember really early on, I was studying the book of Galatians in college, and I, I had stumbled on a, a sermon by John Piper on this. And, he, and he, in the sermon, he said the very same thing. He's like, I have spent 13 hours reading commentaries this week to prepare for this sermon to try to figure out what that passage means. And the conclusion I've arrived is, no one knows. Right? Every once in a while that happens. And so I would invite you, if you know, first off, make sure you know, because hundreds of years of, of theologians have not figured this out. But this is one of those passages that we're not really sure what's happening here. And so for, for 19, you know, when he starts, he asks this question of why should we have, you know, why is the law there? 
And then he goes into this weird thing, but then he answers it. And I want us to invite us to focus on the answer and not dwell on passages that are so difficult. That, because in the end, the answer isn't changed by the understanding of that passage. Right? So just, I am not one to pretend that I know something I don't. If anybody can explain 19b through 20 to me, I would love to have coffee with you this week. I'll buy. And you can tell me all about it. Okay? So in here we get two purposes of the law as we go through the rest of this passage. And the first is this. In 19, it was added for transgressions. Romans uh, 5.20 says it this way. The law came in to increase the trespass. And so we ask, what does this mean? Does, does this mean that God gave us the law to increase sin? And the answer is, yes, he did. Right? The first purpose of the law was to increase the trespass. What does he mean by this? I talked about Graham earlier. Graham constantly does things wrong, but he doesn't know the rules because he's two. And so he doesn't know he's doing anything wrong. And if no one checks it, or no one puts the rules in place, then he'll never know that he's doing wrong. Because if there's no definition, then there's no wrong. Right? If we don't have the moral grounds handed to us, if we're not trained in what is right or wrong, then, then like, we just don't know. The law came so that all of the things that we didn't think were trespass all of a sudden would be put out in the open. The law is an illuminator to the deep-rooted, self-centered, evil, twisted, wicked sin that resides in your heart that you don't know exists. That's why new Christians that have never been a part of the church world before, when they start to read scripture and they start to see the way that God calls us in Christ to live, and they see how different it is from the world, almost every new Christian will go through a phase of guilt. Right? Because the law is shining a light on the person that they are. They didn't realize how sinful they were. The law came in, said, wait, this is how I'm supposed to live? I'm not doing it. Okay. Right? And through the Holy Spirit, as we grow and mature in Christ, the law will continue to reveal little things. There are things about my heart that I understand to be sinful, that I didn't understand to be sinful a year or two or three or four ago. And hopefully, as, we're mature, as we mature in Christ, you feel the same way. There are sins in my I didn't know existed until I had children. Right? I thought I was a very patient human. <laughs> I lack patience. And that's funny, but it's also not. Right? Right? In that way... The law illuminated ways in which I fall short of the glory of God. And so that's one of the primary purposes. It's, it's to bring daylight. And it's driven home in verse 22. Scripture, the law, right? When, when Paul says scripture, he means the Torah, the first five books of the, law, of, of, of the Bible. The law imprisons everything under sin. The law is what convicts us. It is not what saves us. It's the prosecutor in the case. And you are all of a sudden the defendant. And before, you didn't even know you were the defendant. But all of a sudden, it comes in and it says, I accuse. You are not measuring up. Right? And so the, the number one purpose of the law is to do that. 
It's meant to amplify the transgressions in our hearts and to demonstrate our sin. And God really wants to make sure that we see this. If you think about it, the entire Old Testament is the realization of sin through the law. Remember at the beginning of the year, we spent time in Judges, and we watched the Israelites just continue to spiral down and down. From the moment they get the law in Exodus, as they rejoice that they have a, a definition of God's people, they, they increasingly demonstrate how much and just how poorly they fall short of it. So that's, that's the first. Right? That's, the, that's the first point of the law. It's a lens through which we see ourselves and in need of a Savior. That's why in 23, verse 23, we're imprisoned by that law until the coming of the faith would be revealed. So until that happens, we're stuck. Right? But there's another purpose. In verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came. Right? The law has been there not just to accuse us of sin, but paradoxically to be a preventer of sin as well. Right? Imagine, like... I'm not saying if murder was legal, like, all of us would be murderers. But, like, maybe some of us, like, right? Like, if the law weren't there in a civil way, right, or if there were no traffic laws, how much increase in traffic death do you think we would see? Like, do you think we all would just be responsible? Like, no, nah, I mean, I understand that, you know, scientifically 65 is a, is a regulated limit of this road. That's the smart speed to go. Heck no. If I'm on the turnpike and there's no speed limit, I'm going 100. I'm flying down that highway, right? Maybe, maybe 80 if there's kids in the back, right? right? We, we, we need the law. And so the law, in a sense, accuses us. But in another sense, the Lord gave it as a gift to be a stopgap because it illuminates our sin, but it also prevents some sin. There is less sin in the world, and there was less sin in the world of the Israelites because they knew the law. Right? We do follow rules sometimes. And so for the Lord, I mean, literally, the law in the Old Testament is a band-aid on the problem that it by itself cannot solve. Right? And so it accuses us on one hand, and makes us stand condemned. And on the other hand, it's a strong guidepost. It's a light post and a guidepost, if you will. Right? To tell us what is wrong with us and to help steer us at least somewhat in the right direction, but never perfectly. Right? Because here's the other reality of parenting. Even though Graham knows the rules, he doesn't always follow them, and neither do we. Right? And that's when it gets real frustrating. But no matter how good of a rule system we put in place in our own homes or in schools or in the workplace, there's always going to be some side skirting of it. We are never going to obey in a perfect way. We're always going to fall short. Right? And so the law comes in to clean that up to a little of a degree. Right? And that's how it functions. Pastor and author John Stott um, has a beautiful summary of all of this. He says this, After God gave the promise to Abraham... He gave the law to Moses. Why? He had to make things worse before he could make them better. The law exposes sin, provokes sin, condemns sin. And the purpose of the law was to lift the lid off of man's respectability and disclose what he is really underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty under judgment of God, and helpless to save himself. And the law must still be allowed to do this God-given duty today 
One of the great faults of the contemporary church is the tendency to soft pedal in sin and judgment. We must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. To do so is to contradict the plan of God in biblical history. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night that the stars begin to appear, and it's only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. That helps us to understand what we are to do with all of this. Last week after church, I was talking with one of our folks, and I commented, one of the baffling things to me about the Christian faith is that we, we want, somehow, after we're offered free grace, like we're told that we don't have to earn it, it's weird to me that we still want to earn it. Like, I don't know about you. If I can do something lazy, I'll do it lazy. Right? Like, if I have the option of getting something with little work or a lot of work, I'm probably going to choose little work. And so, isn't, do you think it's weird that as Christians that the Lord comes and says, I'll give you grace as a free gift through faith in me? And, and our response is, okay, but I want to earn it myself too by doing this and this and this and this and this. It seems so counterproductive. It's like someone saying, I'm going to pay you $40,000 a year for 10 hours of work, and you're like, I really want to do 50. But that's sin. Do you see how messed up we are by the sin in our world? We, by very nature of who we are as sinful beings, we prefer the hard way. We want to take the law, and we want to make it something that it isn't to serve our own purposes. Man, that's so messed up. <laughs> but that's what the sinful nature does to us. And that's why Paul is saying, listen, you, you, you need to get this right. Um, in Romans 9, um, there's, there's an interesting section where he's talking about the Gentiles and the Israelites. And he, um, he compares and contrasts how they come and he's, he's essentially trying to describe why the Israelites didn't, you know, why they kind of devoted themselves to destruction in the end. Why they didn't follow through. And he says it's not because they, they didn't, you know, it's not because they falsely valued the law. It's because they valued it under the wrong purpose. Right? Paul says, right, should we sin all the more that grace shall abound? No, the law is important. We need the law. We need the, the commands that Christ gives us about how we are to live. They matter and we should follow them. The, the structure of it is all about the motivation. It's about why we follow the law. What are we doing in order to gain favor from God? Right? Are you trying to check off the boxes of the Christian life so that you can look good here and look good to the, to the God who created you? And if you're not doing it consciously, are you doing it subconsciously? Right? The way you know is when you fail, do you feel that God loves you less in that moment? If you do, then there's a part of your heart that is living under the law. And the Lord wants to invite you to, to kill that part off with, with reckless abandon. Absolutely reckless abandon. There is no room for the guilt that weighs us down, that tells us we're not good enough, that causes us to wonder if God loves us and cares about us, and it causes us to wonder if God will continue to fulfill the promise because he will. Right? 
What we should instead do is accept that God has redeemed us, that he loves us, that he purchased life for us on the cross, that he gives it to us freely as he promised to Abraham and fulfilled in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And that because of that gift, because that's your status now, if you go home and screw up today, that's your status now. If you tomorrow mess up epically and fall short of the glory of God, your status is that of Christ Jesus because you are an heir alongside of him, right? Just as Abraham is an heir to the promise, you are an heir to the promise. And because that's true, you go, you know what? I want to live for that. And so I'm going to obey the Lord. And when I fall short, I'm not going to have a pity party about it. I'm not going to feel guilt. I'm not going to let it weigh me down. I'm not going to worry about whether God loves me still. I'm going to, I'm going to pick up and I'm going to ask the Spirit for help and I'm going to continue to move forward and sin less and less and less and less and continue to grow in maturity in Christ until the day he comes back. Let's take it back to the kid analogy. Until he finishes college... Everybody likes to say when they're 18, they're adults. I think that's hogwash. I did youth ministry. There are 18-year-olds in there. They're not adults. Sorry if you're an 18-year-old. You're, you're an adult when you move out of your parents' house and pay your first rent month. That's when you're an adult. Even if you have roommates, it still counts. But you've got to be out of your parents' house. If your parents are your roommates, you're not an adult fully. I know that offends some, but like... And there are special circumstances, so I'm not saying, you know, like there's, there's reasons that... Like, I've, I've, I have a friend who moved in with his mother to take care of her and all that. Of course, you're not a 40-year-old kid, right? But until Graham is an adult, he is under Berna and I's thumb. And he will obey the rules of our house. And he will do the things that we ask him to do. Or he'll sit in time out until he does the things we ask him to do, right? He is going to listen to the law because if not, there's punishment. <laughs> what? What? Yeah, okay. I'm not saying he's going to do it perfectly, but here's, here's the difference. Someday he is going to go off on his own, and Erin is going to go off on her own. And, and those kids aren't going to be living under the thumb of Berdanai's rule anymore. Right? Do, I, do I want him to do what we say until that day and then just start doing anything he wants to do? No. I want to instill things in him that he'll continue to carry on when he's an adult. But here's the difference. Someday, my son is going to be a 25, 30, 35-year-old man with kids of his own. And he's going to be following rules that I set for him in the 18, 20 years prior to that. But he's not going to be doing it to earn my favor anymore. He's going to be doing it because it's, it's what's, what he accepts as right and good. He's going to follow those rules entirely on his own with no motivation from mom or dad. He's, just, he's going to do it because he accepts and understands that it's the right way to live, that we have to have an orderly society, and that if he doesn't, he'll probably go to jail, right? That's why. And so there's a shift in why kids obey the rules that their parents set. They move from doing it because mom and dad said so. By the way, I promised I would never use that phrase before having kids. Six months, I think I lasted, right? 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 But we move from that to doing it on our own. And, and when we become a follower of Christ, when Christ indwells our hearts and the Holy Spirit comes and is promised to us, one of the things that happens is 
The obedience of the law should move from being something that's begrudging to being something that's joyful. We don't obey so that God will love us. We obey because he already loved us. And when we say, I have faith in Christ, what we mean is, I have faith in your way forward. That's why you ought to obey. That's the only reason, by the way, that we can actually obey the law of God, which sounds so, ugh, with joy in our hearts. Because when we come to him, we say, my way is not working. I'll take yours. You want me to do this? I will do it. I will do it with joy in my heart because you have embraced me, because you love me, because you loved me first, because you saved me. We don't do it out of some debt or because we feel like we have to, but we do it because we love the Lord and we continue to grow more and more in his likeness. If you're parents of kids who are grown, you probably know the joy of watching them do the right thing on their own. I've talked to parents who they're like, I raised my kid, I, I prayed when they moved out, and I just hoped that they you know, wouldn't end up, I don't know where. And then they start to surprise them in beautiful ways, and they start to live a life that is on their own. And you as a parent go, yeah. Oh, and they're not doing it to make me happy. They're just doing it. Right? We obey the Lord because he first loved us. And it's our response of gratitude. That's the point of the law. It guides us, it points out our sin, and it, and it sends us at warp speed to the cross. The only response that you should have to the law is, I, I can't follow that without you. I need you, Jesus. Now help me. And he will. Let's pray. God, we thank you for difficult passages, Lord, that you... Um, you have given us people like Paul to, to explain how your world works. Lord, we, we ask for forgiveness when we take the law into our own hands and we want to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we want to do it our way, Lord. It, it brings nothing but condemnation and guilt and sorrow. And you've offered us a better way. And so, Lord, we pray that we might embrace the gospel of Christ that says you have bought us with a price. In turn, our lives would be surrendered to you, not because of what you could do for us or to earn some favor, but just because. Lord, we pray for the strength to do that. We pray for the energy and the reminder and the peace to allow us to combat our own sinful nature through your Holy Spirit's power. Be with us this week as we seek to live out that gospel amongst our communities, our families, our schools, our workplaces, our spheres of influence. We love you. And we praise you. And all his people said, Amen.